Please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Um, we're going to, I think it's, is it page 1755 in there, in the Brown Bibles? And I, wanted, I want to pick up on, um, we're going to go to the, last, the very last message in this series on faith. I'll read to you from the end of chapter 11 again, just read to you those last couple of verses in chapter 11, 1139, and uh, we'll just read about five verses, so... And all these, all these amazing heroes, amazing examples, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised because they lived before Jesus. They didn't get to say, see all the amazing things that Jesus would do. Um, so they didn't get to receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us, us who live on the other side of the cross, us who, who uh, sit under the benefit of knowing about Jesus that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And he says, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, this great crowd in the stadium, shouting at you, witnessing to you, testifying to you about the faithfulness of God, he says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. He did it for us. The whole purpose of this of this entire chapter has been that it would encourage us to learn to run a bit faster, a bit harder, and to trust God in all kinds of situations and circumstances. He's been telling us what faith looks like in countless examples of, you know, as as diverse as our lives are in this room, that's how many opportunities there are to exercise faith. And uh, the thing about Running, running, literally running in this metaphorical way is that it always looks easy from the outside, doesn't it? You look at people run, you think that looks pretty easy, one foot in front of the other. But when it comes to it, and uh, you, you find your, your, your lungs heaving, the sweat pouring out, exhaustion setting in, running is hard. And it's true in the Christian life to run with God by faith in the way that he's telling us to do here. Let us lay aside every weight, and he says, let us run with endurance that race. It is difficult and it's not something that we should reckon, uh, think to be an easy thing that you can just take for granted. In fact, this chapter, in fact, probably the whole of the New Testament wouldn't exist were the Christian life an easy thing. I think a lot of you, you know, we, one of the great things, the challenges of doing pastoral work, I mean, I woke up this morning just feeling burdened because I had, I was waking up in the night thinking about people in this church and some of the issues going on in people's lives. And you just sometimes you just don't know what to do, and you just recognize that there's all kinds of things going on in different people's lives, and they're struggling. And there are times when we feel like we're flying, and there are times when we just feel like we're just hitting walls, or people are discouraged, or they're confused, or they're, they're whatever's going on in, in different people's lives. And I, I, don't, I don't know all the solutions often. I, most of the time, I've got my own issues. I take heart from the fact that this chapter tells me that the Christian life is going to be difficult. In fact, the chapter wouldn't exist if it were not so. I take heart from that. It was the same then. It's the same now. And I know that God's given us the resources to face stuff, right? 
Let me just quickly summarize for you some of the things that, that make it hard. And they just happen to all begin with D. I didn't really even mean for that to be the case. I'm slightly embarrassed by it, but let me just tell you what they are. First of all, there are distractions. Distractions in the sense that there are stuff in life, pleasures and pressures, that take your mind off your faith. And faith requires attention, it requires devotion, it requires sustained focus. And when you have work that keeps you in late every day, or things that you enjoy doing, the pleasures of life, they pull you and they pull your mind and they pull your headspace away from Christ. Distractions are one of those things. Another thing is discouragements. I think for a lot of you, you feel like you carry with you, like Christian in the the story of Pilgrim's Progress, you carry with you a burden on your back from your past failures. You don't have to, but you do. For others of us, we feel like we're facing present challenges that are daunting to us and circumstances. So we have these discouragements that weigh us down and take our eyes off Christ. We have also, a third thing is doubts. I think there isn't one of us in this room who doesn't at times wonder if our prayers are getting through. Or wonder if when we're reading the Bible, if we're hearing God or not. All of us, you know, if we didn't have doubts, we would be like Jesus. Doubt is at the root of our, every sort of spiritual sickness we have, right? It affects some of you more than, than others, but we have doubts. We have, a fourth thing is dangers. There's an enemy who's within us, our own flesh, and there's an enemy without. He wants to prod you and strike you where you're vulnerable. You think those old suits of armor, how there are usually one or two little cracks in the armor where people are vulnerable. And friends, you, you all have these vulnerabilities. There are dangers. The enemy wants to take you out and take you down. And the fifth thing is just this broad word, just depression. Sometimes you can be depressed about stuff, maybe the things I've just listed, and sometimes it's just for no reason whatsoever. You just feel a heaviness of spirit, and that God is far away, and that your heart is not full of love and passion and all the things that you want to be full of and joy. And because of all this, I want us to think about what he's saying to us, particularly in the second verse. Because what I want to do today is invite you to engage in a kind of a positive escapism. Often our instinct when we're frustrated with situations is to engage in escapism of one form or another, right? Get your mind off it. Find some distraction, whether it's binging on box sets or whether it's some other thing that you enjoy. But what I want you to do today is recognize that this is almost exactly what this verse tells us to do, except that it's a positive escapism. We're being invited to forget ourselves for a moment and get our minds on Christ. There is only one fix-all solution to all the things I've been naming and more, and it is Jesus. So I want us to just work through what he says in this verse with care and attention Because this is food for the soul, friends. Here's the first thing he tells us. That you need to look at Jesus. Run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. Now what I think he's doing for us here, we've had a whole list of amazing characters running through all the last chapter. But he brings it to the very pinnacle, the very climax. And what he's doing is he's setting up for us Jesus as a kind of a hero in the classical sense. 
Now, we, we understand the word hero partly from um, you know, Marvel and DC Comics and leotards and all the rest of it. And I want you to just put that image out of your mind, which is not helpful since I just mentioned it. But anyway, put all of that in, out of your mind for a second. I just think how there are everyday heroes. And, and, and a hero, in a sense, is somebody who, who changes the atmosphere just by their very presence. They inspire hope by their very presence. It can be like a policeman who... Just the, them being on the street makes you feel somewhat safer. Or a spouse who, who just always knows how to prepare the right food for your hungry stomach and lift you up. Or it can be someone like a friend who always has that ability to make you smile. You know, some friends, they walk into the room and whatever you're frustrated with, it just sort of lifts just by them being there. Or the guy on your five-a-side team who, whenever he steps on to the pitch, you think, okay, we're okay now. We're not going to be slaughtered anymore. Or the, the manager who brings order and harmony to the office. and Everyone fights when he's away, but when he's back, there's, there's order. Or the CEO who, she always manages to deliver profit, you know, quarter after quarter. And these people just inspire confidence by their very presence and by their abilities. They're heroes in a small, everyday way. And this word hero, actually, you know, in, in a classical sense, it goes right back to the old mythologies. Chieftains and warriors who were undefeated in battle and sometimes took on a kind of demigod status. And, you know, you think about someone like Goliath. He was that Philistine hero, wasn't he? They put him onto the battlefield thinking no one will be able to kill him. And then David comes along and he becomes a hero because he slaughters Goliath. I've been reading or listening to um, Seamus Heaney's version of Beowulf. You know, the stories of Grendel, this demon monster, attacking Hrothgar's people, the Danes. And then Beowulf, who's a Geet. I don't know who the Geets are. Can anyone tell me at the end, please, who the Geets are? Beowulf is this, this warrior in battle. Who's, it says he has the strength of 30 men in each hand. And then he sails across the sea to come and kill Grendel. And he's introduced in this way. It says, there was no one else like him alive. In his day, he was the mightiest man on earth, high-born and powerful. I love the language. It's amazing how evocative it is. When we're reading this chapter and we get to this part about Jesus, the author is wanting to hold up before us that Jesus is a hero who by his presence changes the atmosphere and inspires hope. All through history, he's been doing that. Before he was born, while he was on earth, and even after his ascension into heaven. I've been reading through uh, the Old Testament minor prophets, and I've taken a pen out to just begin underlining sections where Jesus is being spoken of centuries before he was born. And the hope was being put in people's hearts, this expectation. And often I found that these prophecies have come in the back of all kinds of terrible things happening in the nation of Israel. They've been taken into Babylon, into exile, or they're being threatened with God abandoning them. But then always God, after, because, while he's punishing them, he's always sowing seeds of hope. And he's talking, the way he does it, predominantly, is by talking about Jesus. Like in Hosea 3, he talks about how terrible the people have been. But then he says... He says afterward, they're going to be without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. So the people and their religion is going to be annihilated. But then he says, afterward, the children of Israel, Israel shall return and seek the Lord our God, their God. And David, their king, speaking of David's descendant, Jesus. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. 
So when people were losing heart, all they had to do was whisper the name of Jesus or of David, this future David, this king who was to come. It comes through in, in Amos 9. Again, destruction, terrible things happening to the people of Israel. And it says, in that day, I will raise up the booth, the tent of David that is fallen. He says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. Because God, Jesus is going to restore so much fruit and prosperity to his people when their lot was destroyed. Micah 5, this one will be familiar to you. Again, the backdrop is just terrible, terrible things happening to the people. But then he says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. It says he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. He was the hero they were waiting for. Now, of course, when Jesus arrived, a lot of people didn't recognize him as that. But for those who did, he was that one whose presence changed everything. You look at his disciples, the band of his disciples. They would not have known or loved or been friends with one another if it were not for Jesus, the one who bound them together. When he disappeared, they got agitated and wondered, where's Jesus gone? So much so that on one occasion he disappeared and then he comes walking across the water and the guys are in a boat and Peter's like, I want to come to you. He jumps out to go and walk to Jesus on the water. So eager are they to be with Jesus all of the time. When Jesus is finally killed and taken away from them, their hearts are totally dejected and they're in despair. Because all their hopes rest on him when he's taken out of the picture All they're left with is hopelessness. And of course, the reverse happens when they see him again. Whenever he's in the room, you see in the Gospels, okay, sometimes not so much when he's telling people off, but you see warmth and love. And you see such acceptance that even the most broken people come to him weeping, like like the woman who was a simple woman, weeping, weeping, weeping bringing her sacrifice of worship to Jesus, pouring perfume on him, washing his feet with her hair. And it's his, his presence. He's the hero. What's our faith without Jesus? And even to now, there is no Christianity without a central focus on the awesome person of Jesus. You know, are you familiar with that? Um, where's it gone? That, uh, that recording of the preacher S.M. Lockridge. On, uh, you can find videos of this on YouTube and stuff. Where it goes, that's my king. You know the one? Is anyone familiar with that? Yeah. It goes on and on. There's loads in there. But there's these, these lines in here that just grab, grab you and grip the imagination. Where he says things like this. He says, he's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. That's my king. He's the miracle of the age. He's the superlative of everything good that you choose to call him. He's the only one able to supply all of our needs simultaneously. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek 
And there's only 10% of all the superlatives he has to say about Jesus. That's my king. And this is why, at the end of this chapter, for those who are weary, he brings it to a focus and he says, run with endurance, looking to Jesus. How do we do it? I just want to tell you a couple of things. The first is, in practice, I don't think you can look to Jesus without reading about what it says about him in the Word of God. I think that a lot of Christians are given to kind of mysticism and um, a kind of more of a touchy-feely end of the faith where their minds have been divorced from Scripture a long time ago. This is where you get kind of all kinds of weird aberrations in, in, in churches where Christianity is being taken off in different directions. That if you know Jesus, they're far away from what he intended for his church. But people like the idea of Jesus sometimes more than they like the real thing. And you can't know Jesus or look to Jesus in the way that he's telling us here without being immersed in his word. A lot of people like to say things like, I like to think of God as this. But all they're doing is conjuring up an idol. And when people do the same about Jesus, and they, they think they know him because they have this idea about him because they clung on to one or two of his words, that's not enough. Friends, you can't know Jesus or look to him unless you're saturated in the word of God. And I don't just mean the gospels, though I think that's central. The early church used to read the gospels constantly. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John over and over again all the time. But it's not that we're just red-letter Christians who only read the sayings of Jesus in the Gospels. The whole of the Bible speaks about him. And obviously, the first thing you've got to say is you want to be a Christian who looks to Jesus day in, day out, finds hope, finds faith, finds endurance for the race. You can't do it, and you shouldn't expect to be able to do it without being saturated in the Word of God. I know it's hard. I know it's challenging. But you've got to find out a way that you can commit for yourself to read about and learn about Christ day in, day out. And you will grow. But I also know that, and I've met Christians and maybe people also who are not Christians. I, you know, I studied at King's College London, theology course there, and I would say half the lecturers there were not Christians. And you think, these guys knew their Bibles pretty well, but it didn't guarantee that they knew Christ. And I've met many Christians as well who who hold up and treasure the word of God, but they don't seem to have that same adoration or speak about Jesus with that twinkle in your eye that speaks of love and passion for him. And I think that it, when you look at what it means in the New Testament to look to Jesus, to know Jesus, it has to include something of a dynamic, spiritual walk with him. You remember how Paul is one of these guys who... who craves that knowledge of Christ in his spirit, in his heart. And he says things like this, that for his sake, for Jesus' sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. So he wants to discharge and get rid of all the weights and sins that easily entangle. In order, he says, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And he goes on, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. I think when Paul talks in this kind of way, I don't think he's just talking about sitting down for hour after hour reading his, his Bible, though I'm sure he did that. I think he means something more immediate, experiential, intimate. I think he means something about what it means to enjoy communion with the Father by the Spirit through Christ. 
This is what he prays for when he prays for the Ephesian church. He prays prayers like this. He says, I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that what? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. He prays, he prays earnestly for the churches that they might grow in their knowledge of Jesus, that they might look to Jesus. It goes on over the page in chapter 3 of Ephesians. He keeps on praying for them. This book is full of prayers. He prays that, the, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Friends, what I'm trying to say to you that is something like this, that when he's telling us here in Hebrews 12 that we need to run by looking to Jesus, I think you have to be somebody who is growing both in your understanding, in your mind, but also in your heart, in your passion, in your love. Isn't this what John or Jesus actually speaks about in the book of Revelation when he speaks to one of the churches and says they've lost their first love. He's not talking about a head knowledge. He's talking about a heart passion, a passion that gives birth to obedience and devotion and sacrifice and love and giving. Jesus is not satisfied with people who don't Love him the way he loves them. He wants you to fix your eyes upon him and to be devoted to him. I know it's not always easy to hold him up as central in your mind and your heart, but he is worthy of it, isn't he? We want to be people whose spirits are caught up with Christ, who love to worship him day after day, who love to speak with him and are intimate with him. Friends, that is what we need to press towards. You need to look to Jesus. Here's the second thing. You need to place your confidence in Jesus. He goes on and says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Now, here's where we need to start. Ask yourself this question. Why do we ever get discouraged in the Christian life? And I think 100% of the time, it's because we get our eyes off Christ and put them on our, our, ourselves and our situations. I'm thinking about, I mentioned a few minutes ago, Peter, Matthew 14, how he comes to Jesus walking on the water. And doesn't it say that he began, it says that when he saw the wind, so he was looking at Christ, he was walking on the water, coming towards Jesus. It says when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. It's an amazing picture of what happens in your daily life when you're seeking to walk with Christ. When, as long as you're looking at him, you seem to be going all right. And the minute you look around at the wind, or in other words, everything that would kill you, the storm, the waves, all that kind of stuff, it's like you start to sink because you're no longer focused upon Christ. What a beautiful picture of what it means to look to Jesus. And here's the thing. Looking at yourself and your circumstances will always be fatal in the Christian life. Because either it will tend on the one hand towards pride. When you're having great, a great day and you're, you're going well, if you're looking at yourself, then you become proud. Or it will lead towards despair when you suddenly see your weakness, your frailty, your circumstances and everything that will drag you down. Or both in one day. I, think, I speak about my own circumstances, I think I can flip between the two. One minute I'm full of pride and the next minute I'm full of despair. And somehow I managed to mix those two things together. 
That's how corrupt the heart can be, right? Now here we realize something profoundly paradigm-shifting about the Christian life when he tells us here that Jesus is both the founder and the perfecter of our faith. And it means something like this, that on the one hand, there is nothing of you in your salvation. And on the other hand, that there is everything of Christ. I want to just take it one word at a time and understand what I'm saying there. First, in terms of him being the founder of our faith, it means simply this, that Jesus did it all. He was your hero. He was your representative. He was the one who, as it were, walked on the battlefield to win it for you, just as Beowulf walks into that mead hall to win it for Hrothgar. He's the one who, who took your sin upon his shoulders and was nailed to the cross so that you would go free. I know that we know this, but at the same time, I think it's hard for it to register with our hearts just how deep that truth goes. You contribute nothing to your salvation. Nothing, not a thing. Our hearts always want to claim back a little bit of glory, a little bit of achievement. Now, when I, when I pull out the Duplo blocks with Seth, we, we usually build a tower. I can't think of what else to build, so I just build a tower. And um, he'll, he'll be grabbing blocks and plopping them on wherever. And I, when he looks away, I take them off and put them where they should be. And we, that's basically how we build. I move, he gives them to me, and I move them around, make sure that the tower actually is structurally sound. And um, by the end of it, we might have something that's like almost as tall as my wife, which isn't very tall, but it'd be quite tall. And... Uh, we get there in the end, and then Sethi will run away and shout, Mommy, look what I built! <laughs> and obviously, it's, it's just a picture there for you guys of what it's like when you think about your Christian life. The further and faster you go with Christ, the more you think you've done something, right? We always love to claim back a little bit of credit for ourselves. But ask yourself this question. What exactly did you contribute to getting saved? Did you contribute your birth, your circumstances, your goodness, your cleverness? I was reading um, this autobiography of Spurgeon recently, and he talks about how he came to realize just how thoroughly gracious God is in that he saves you from beginning to end. He put it like this. I thought it was striking. He says, this thought struck me. How did you come to be a Christian? He asked himself. I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I prayed, thought I, but then I asked myself, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. How came I to read the scriptures? I I did read them, but what led me to do so? Then, in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all. And that he was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace, which means that God did it all and you did nothing, opened up to me. And from that doctrine I have not departed to this day. And I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. That's what it means when he says he's the author of our faith. It means you really brought nothing at all to this. Most of us can accept that, but we trip up at the next bit where he says he's the author and the finisher or the perfecter of our faith. Because we tend to imagine that the Christian life is a little bit like Christ saves you, like someone comes in and jump starts a car 
but then it's your job to keep that thing going. But the meaning is still, no friends, it's all him. I think we find it hard, as I've been saying, because we love to preserve a little bit of glory for our own hearts, don't we? Look how great I am. Look what I've achieved. Instead, friends, we need to realize and take comfort from and encouragement from this fact. Jesus does it all. He's telling us about him that he's, the complete, he's a completer finisher. You know, some people have that personality with their completer finishers. I, unfortunately, I'm not one of them. My bedroom as I was growing up was littered with unfinished projects. You know, a model airplane that I hadn't finished or painted or something, or a copper foil craft thing where I'd scratched off half the face of the line and left the rest because I'd run out of steam. I was one of those people who would start things with enthusiasm but rarely finish them. And, you know, a lot of us fall into two camps. We're either like creative types who love to ignite new ideas and start things, or some of you are more logistics people who know how to get things finished and complete and done. But very rarely do you find people who somehow combine both of those. But Jesus, he's telling us here, is the ultimate completer finisher. And he's telling us something about you as well. That you are his special project. And that Jesus, like one of those hobbyists, who is not satisfied until they've collected every piece and assembled everything, he is obsessed with completing his projects until they're finished. It's what Romans tells us. when He says that we're those whom he called, he justified, and so on and so on, until they were glorified. He isn't satisfied just to save people. He wants to bring them through to completion so that they stand before him on that last day, ready, with new robes pure, holy, transformed. Now you look at your life and you think, what is wrong with me? Why do I consistently fail? But friends, take heart from this fact. Jesus has not given up. That's why he says he's the author and perfecter of our faith. Now I know there's some mystery here because the New Testament tells us that we've got to do some stuff in order to walk with Jesus. So while it's all him, there's still things you've got to do, decisions you've got to make, effort you've got to engage it's so perfectly captured in Philippians 2 and Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Saying, whenever, whether I'm with you or not, he says this, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So he's exhorting the people to obey Jesus, walk with him, engage their hearts and, and learn how to, to, to obey Jesus. But then he says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He's saying that ultimately, it's all God. It's all Jesus. He's the author and the finisher of your faith. We want to have a church where people feel like they can come in from any background and any kind of failure and know that they can have new hope today. Because Jesus is merciful. Because he is kind. Because he deals with us in our petulant, childish ways where we are we are so given to bad attitudes and frustration, or he deals with us in our, in our lusts and our temptations, but he's kind, he's gentle, he binds you up. Friends, yes, you need to make decision to follow after him, obey him, but even that inclination, even the fact that you are sitting here today, give thanks to him. He brought you here. He's doing it. He is completing the work he started. Here's the last thing I want to tell you. 
We talked about how you need to look at him, you need to place your confidence in him. But friends, you also need to take encouragement from his example. He closes off, and this is where we want to end this series. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, what is he telling us here? Well, ask this question to begin. What is it that makes our faith unique? There's lots of answers you can give me, words that capture ideas that are unique about the Christian faith. But if you want to bring it all in summary in one word, it's got to be the name Jesus, hasn't it? We, well, I remember when I was a kid, probably primary school age, there was a girl in our Sunday school who the answer to every question was always Jesus. And the, the Sunday school teacher would ask us, okay, kids, who was it who killed Goliath? And she'd go, bing, 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 and go, okay, Jesus. Almost, almost, yeah, that's actually David. And then he'd, he'd ask other questions, it'd always be Jesus. But sometimes he'd, he'd ask a question. I remember one vividly on one occasion when he asked a question, he said, who was it who died on the cross for us? Oh, me, me, me. Yes, you can have it. Jesus, correct, well done. <laughs> now, if you want to bring it all down to one thing, what is unique about our faith? Jesus. It's all Jesus. Because on the one hand, we don't have a God who's so distant that we can't know him which is true of other faiths. On the other hand, we don't just have human heroes who are flawed and disappointing like so many of the founders of other religions. We have this one who is so unique, who is God and man, combining all that perfection, but also the frailty of being human in one person. And it is incredible, because on the one hand, it means he touches us in our humanity. On the other hand, he inspires us with hope because of his divinity. That's what's unique about the Christian faith. Now, the reason why I'm bringing your mind to that is because I think you think about heroes. When heroes don't have any vulnerability, they're hard to be inspired by, aren't they? You you compare your reaction to watching a... Have you ever watched a Superman film and just been biting your nails or fretting or anxious about what's going to happen to him? No, because he always wins, right? He's invulnerable, almost. But then you watch something like Lord of the Rings, and one of the things that has most touched people's hearts over the decades and has gripped people's imaginations by that story is the weakness of Frodo. He's one of the little hobbits from the Shire, the most unpromising sort of creature to bring deliverance to Middle-earth. And you find him trembling as he enters Mordor. So much of his frailty is what grips you. Now, When you read the book of Hebrews, time and again, one of the things he wants to lay out before us and emphasize to us is the humanity of Jesus. In quite striking and sometimes slightly shocking ways. We don't have time to fully open this up, but he says things like this in in chapter 4. He says, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, how are you tempted? Do you ever imagine that Jesus was tempted in the exact same ways? Tempted to be greedy? Tempted to be selfish? Tempted not to share? Tempted to lust? Tempted to boss people around or to react with anger or tempted to 
try and get glory for himself outside of God's will. Tempted like we are, but without sin. He never gave in. But he wants us to understand the humanity of Jesus. He tells us in the next chapter, in chapter 5, he tells us this. He says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. You've ever really meditated on that? Why did Jesus have to learn obedience? He was perfect. He never disobeyed. But what he's saying was, in order to make Jesus fit to go for the, to the cross for you, he had to go through ordinary life and learn what obedience looks like in day-to-day living. He had to learn obedience through what he suffered, through those moments when he feels abandoned by God or it's not fair. He had to learn what obedience looks like in day-to-day life, that just chugging away day after day, day after day, until he finally reaches his destination at the cross. And the reason why I want you to just meditate on the humanity of Christ is because that is exactly where this verse lands for us. What does it mean in terms of our running, in terms of our faith? And it's just this, that Jesus himself, in order to live a godly life, had to live by faith. He didn't have some special other means of walking with God. He had to do it the same way that you and I do it, in the power of the Spirit and by faith. It means that he had to believe the promises that God had whispered into his soul and had spoken to him through the scriptures. Jesus understood what his destiny was, but I think he understood it mainly from reading his Bible. I think he read places like Psalm 2, where it says that, Ask of me and I'll give the nations as your inheritance. And it's a psalm about the Son asking the Father for the nations. I think Jesus read it, and somehow or other, it dawned on him, That's my destiny. He had to believe the promises of God by faith. He had to endure suffering by faith. He had to experience temptation and throw it off and reject temptation by faith, trusting that God's will was better for him. And he had to ultimately inherit what God was going to give him by faith so that eventually he triumphed. But all the way along, it wasn't like he had some special means of of living a godly life. He had to do it the same way that you and I do, by faith and in the power of the Spirit. I take immense encouragement from that. Because he shows us this, that it can be done. Of course, he did it with one great difference. He had to be a pioneer, whereas you and I get to look at Jesus and follow in his footsteps. That's what I'm trying to encourage you to do. And there he is, he tells us, he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And it's like as though, you know when people jump into cold swimming pools and then 30 seconds later they're like, it's actually quite warm now. It's like that. He's, like, he's gone through the worst of the suffering. He's on the other side. He's saying, jump in, it's going to be fine. Or he's like, he's climbed up the mountain. He's shouting down to you. The view up here is awesome. Just keep going. Jesus is the pioneer. And our job is to watch carefully what his footsteps look like so that we can walk in them, knowing, knowing that by God's grace, we will reach our destiny, our destination. Friends, if you are not a Christian, I know we all face troubles in life. And maybe you've been trying to fight your way out of your troubles. 
You felt like your hands are tied, but you've been wrestling and struggling and trying to fight your way out of your troubles. And really what I want to do today is to invite you to give up. You can never find lasting peace in your own solutions or in the solutions that the world offers you. Jesus offers you himself a superior solution. He offers you his righteousness, his goodness, his record that he can give to you as a gift. And he offers you his punishment to take away what you've done wrong. Take away all the guilt, the shame, the anxiety, the depression. He wants to take it away. And as long as you keep fighting to try and solve your own problems, I think that your problems will not disappear. But when you learn to come to Jesus and lay them at his feet in desperation and need and total surrender, Christ begins a work in you of transformation. I know it because it's happened to me and it's happened in most of the people sat in this room. But let me also just address you if you're a Christian. Maybe you've just been a little bit too focused on yourself. And on the one hand, it's led you to experience pride when things are going well. And on the other hand, just despair when you feel frustrated with yourself or your circumstances. And As long as you're trying to solve things by looking at yourself, friends, you're dead in the water. Look to Jesus.